Hello, and welcome to Leather Talk with Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. I'm your host, Brandon. Today is episode 9, and we have a lot in store for you. Our next guest talks about his involvement in the leather community as a current 2020 leather title holder. Later on, our guest talks about his experience in the adult entertainment industry and how it has informed his platform and mission towards body positivity. Get ready for some more Leather Talk. Everybody, this is Brandon, your Mr. Bullet Leather 2020. Before we get started with this episode, I'd like to put out a disclaimer. Later on in the interview, around the 43-minute mark, part of our guest story touches on the topic of discovering his own sexual tendencies at a very young age. If you are sensitive towards hearing content of this nature, please skip ahead. I will also put a quick notice just before he starts to share that in the interview, just to give those of you who would like to skip forward the opportunity to do so. Please keep in mind that this is our guest story told in his own words. The views and opinions expressed are those of this guest only and do not reflect any official position of the Leather Talk podcast. Welcome, everyone. And today's guest on the Leather Talk podcast is Jeff May. Jeff, would you mind introducing yourself, please? Hi, guys. I uh, My name is Jeff May. I am the current Mr. Regiment 2020. And you identify as gay, correct? I do identify as gay, correct, okay. yeah. Awesome. So what got you interested in running for the Mr. Regiment contest in the first place? It was being around in the community between Florida and other places in here. I've always been privy to contests, and it's something that when I moved out to L.A. six and a half years ago that I became more and more interested in, Mm -hmm. and I just wasn't, I wasn't 100% comfortable with myself and prepared for it. You know, when this uh, year came along, something in my gut just told me this is it. You know, this is going to be one one of my main times to do it. I'm in a great place with myself. I'm in a great place with things around me in my life. Mr. Regiment is a big uniform and fetish club here in Los Angeles, the Regiment of the Black and Tans. And it definitely fits into to my, my aesthetic with fetish and uniforms. And I love cops and all that. And it was just a perfect fit. So how long would you say you've been in the leather community prior to uh, being a part of the contest? I went to my first leather bar when I was about 19. So I've been around leather, and it took me a few years before I really grabbed a hold on to it. But I would say truly 100%, probably about 13 years. Do you remember your first time going into like any kind of leather environment? What was it like? And uh, could you describe that scene for us? Sure. I would love to go back to that frightening, terrifying, <laughs> traumatic moment. <laughs> I feel like I'm on Dr. Phil. <laughs> it, it was good. Um, you know, I was like 19, 20, 
Um, it was at 2606 in Tampa, Florida. It was my first leather bar, first type of leather environment. It was really dark, really seedy, and I loved it. I was also in the middle of my addiction, so I was really high on drugs. I don't know what I was doing, but it was probably a mixture of like five or six things. So it was probably a lot less terrifying than what it appeared to me. (laughs) (laughs) And it was, it was good. You know, I had fun. I remember walking in, I want to say it was two levels. The first level was a big bar. Uh, You walk up the stairs and I remember seeing guys in corners. I remember it being like a, like a two story, like square facility where like, in the middle, I think on the top was like a small little bar, but then it was just standing room space. I could be completely wrong, but this is what I remember. This is and, what you remember in your head. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I've always been drawn to the dark, seedy uh, places where you don't have to talk. Yeah. Where you just grab your crotch, you just, you know, the eye contact and all that. And there was something about it that turned me on. And I wish I could have done something about it, but I was there with three straight girls because every 19-year-old gay boy has their little straight girl posse. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure we've all had a couple. And it was, there was just something about it. And I didn't really grasp a hold onto it or understand it until a few, few years later. That was my first actual experience directly involved with a leather environment. Now, my first actual experience with leather i remember being 9 10 11 12 and being so fascinated and enthralled and mesmerized and turned on by tama finland how did you stumble upon tama finland at that time barnes and noble in the adult book aisle yeah, that's really interesting because um, those of you who are listening, if you heard last week's episode with Angel Leather Lover, his first encounter with Tama Finland was over social media through Instagram. So it's just interesting to see the different encounters that we have across the generations, like how we experience leather differently. Yeah, yeah. I'm actually in a, in a couple of weeks, I'm going to be 39. So it's been since my very first introduction i guess was when i noticed tama finland and when you're that age 9 10 11 12 you don't really know what's going on you just know what you like not so i would i would say it's probably what 25 to 30 years to my first actual introduction of quote-unquote leather but it was probably i was like 24 25 where i really started putting everything together where i started realizing okay this is why i was feeling this way and this is why i was drawn to the more seedier bars you know, my late teens, early 20s, rather than, for lack of better terms, the pretty boy bars. Yeah, you really you make a really good point. I think, like, even at the pretty boy bars, gay culture has always been a little bit cruisy, but it's like on steroids. When you go into a leather bar, the, the entire environment just, ex- like, screams sex. <laughs> <laughs> yes, figuratively and literally. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Depending who's there. <laughs> yeah, it's just, it's, uh, so I'm curious, what has been like maybe one of the more sexual things that you've done at a, at a leather bar that, that separates it from the experience of other gay bars? There's been a lot of experiences. You know, I think like if I go into say Mickey's or the Abbey or something, it's just a totally different mindset. 
Yeah. Then say if I go into the bullet or if I go into the eagle or if I go into fault line, you know, there's there's a, a sexual energy that comes out of me. So, of course, the experiences are going to be completely different. I'm going to be more sexually charged. I'm going to be more cruising, looking at the guys, you know, seeing what turns me on. And I think places like the eagle at the bullet and all that, I don't want to say that it's not accepted other places, but I think it's just more open. So it allows us to be more free with the flirting. And it allows us to stare at guys in the bathroom while they're, they're taking a piss. I don't think my experiences are really that much different than anybody else. I'm sure we've all had those moments at a fox hall or rough sex or something where we whip our dick out, we start sucking, sucking dick, or we get fucked at one of those parties, or we go back to the playroom. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's definitely where it stands as like the attitude is slightly different. Like, you know, I've definitely done some cruising at other gay bars in West Hollywood and stuff like that. But there's like this attitude of like, I don't know, if, 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 if a guy is not into you, he'll make it known. He'll be like, ugh, kind of thing. <laughs> Whereas like the leather bar, like, I think there's a lot of communication between people in the kink world. And I've had it before where I'm like, you know, I'll go up to a guy and I'm like, hey, you're really cute or or whatever, and just kind of give him the eye. And if the guy's not into me, he, you know, this happened a couple of times where he, he put his hand on my shoulder and say, thank you. And then that's it. Walk away. And I'm like, okay, I get the message. It's like the attitude is very different. Yeah. It seems like there's a little bit more of, I guess, acceptance for the cruising, acceptance for the play. It's almost to be like, if you walk into the bullet to that back bathroom, or you walk into the Eagle and you see somebody pissing, you almost have to expect somebody to look at your dick or somebody has to expect you looking at theirs. Yeah, that's part of the fun. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I think with uh, a lot of the more, I don't want to say vanilla, or and I don't want to pinpoint, say, West Hollywood, but if you go into the Abbey and do that, it's still very taboo. It feels like there's a taboo feeling to it, like they shouldn't be doing it, like they're afraid to embrace that side of them, if that makes sense. Yeah, just like a little bit of a barrier. Yeah, yeah. The the leather bars and kink bars and fetishes are definitely more open to it than, say, say other bars around. And as I said, I don't want to pinpoint West Hollywood or certain bars in there. I think it's just a good... It's a good contrast to, say, a place like the Abbey, which is uh, very in my opinion, pretty. Yeah. It definitely has its place, though. I mean, I, I've had plenty of good nights over there. Oh, of course. Of course. You know, if, if I'm going out to cruise somebody and have fun and all that, the first place on my list on the top of my head isn't the Abbey. It, it's just a mindset when you go in there, you know, it's not, it's more of a, a cat and mouse game. You know, rather when you go into the Eagle or the Bullet or Fault Line, you kind of know what, what you're going to get and everybody's on the same right. page. So I, I want to go back to a little bit of what you mentioned before. You mentioned an experience with drugs. and uh, Are you sober now? Or you had an issue with drugs before? How did that, how did that play out? Oh, girl, I didn't have the issue with drugs. I had an issue with me. Um, <laughs> no, yeah, September 12th, 2007, I got sober. So this September, I would be sober 13 years. Wow, congratulations. And I was... 26. I was a couple months after I turned 26, I got sober. And uh, you don't have to go into this if you don't, if you're not comfortable with it. But what was it that maybe got you into the drugs in the first place? I'm, I'm very open about my recovery. I'm very open about my sobriety. The one thing that we learn 
with the leather community is visibility is key, you know, and we have to be outward about stuff we go through to help other people. And I can't pinpoint any specific thing that got me into drugs. There were a lot going on with sports at the time. My parents were going through a divorce. I had got bashed very publicly for the level I was on at sports with some certain things. And I think it was just a mixture of everything. Yeah. To sum it up, I had I had come back from Europe for a three month a three week United States national team tour with the British Grand Prix Grand Prix, European Grand Prix, and I was competing all over Europe and the world. And when I came back, people deemed my performance not respectable. And I was only 16. I was the youngest guy on the team. I was the smallest. And I took that to heart, which I probably shouldn't have. And I ended up taking the rest of that summer off because I, I needed a break. I needed to, to I, I just needed a break. You know, I was a sophomore in high school traveling all over the world. And, you know, sports was my job. It was my full-time job. And right when I took a break, my parents started to go through the process of a divorce. And, you know, one thing led to another and I started doing drugs. I was 17. And like I said, I can't say it's because of sports. I can't say it's because of my parents. Ultimately, with whatever I do in life, it's something I chose to do. Nobody put a gun to my head to give me that first hit of ecstasy or that first hit of crystal meth. I did it myself. Right. So it's kind of hard for me to sit here and say, yeah, you know, it's because of all this. I think I I was an addict and alcoholic from the day I was born. And then when I found drugs and alcohol, that's where the light switch got flipped on. So what what message do you have for that 16, 17, 18-year-old today who's listening to your voice right now going through the same things? What would you tell that person? That's a very good question. No, I watch a lot of RuPaul's Drag Race, and I can definitely answer this question when they get to the final four. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's a mixture. You know, I would say be easy on yourself. You know, if they are going through the drugs, if they are going through the alcohol and the insecurities, be easy on yourself. Know that you're loved. Know that people care about you. On the other hand, I know for me, everything that I've gone through, I had to go through everything in my life to get to where I am today. Right. You know, so if that's their path, do what they they need to do. But the biggest thing is don't be afraid to ask for help, whatever it is. I think that's really great advice. I think there's so many people that even when, and uh, people in my life and, you know, that I've asked, you know, do you need help? Can I help you with this? There's sometimes people like our pride, we just don't want to ask for help and we don't even want to accept it when it's offered to us. And that's like the biggest thing. Like it's okay to need help from somebody and to get help from somebody. Of course. I think, or I believe, I don't think I believe that we as men, and we as Leatherman and just people in general that we see strength and courage and in experience, we see it very black and white. Mm-hmm. Like if like real men don't cry and, and real men in leather don't cry and they don't ask for help and they're very individual and they're, they don't need anybody. But it takes a lot of courage to actually raise your hand and say, I need help. I need help with this. 
Yeah, I think you make a very a, a very key point there that it takes courage to ask for help, right? And to admit that to yourself, um, it is an act of of courage. So, do you think that your experiences growing up, like uh, going through this journey, had anything to do with the way you present yourself in presented yourself in the contest for Mister Regiment or your mission or your platform? To sit here and say no would probably be a lie. I believe that. You know, our childhoods, our past, people we surround ourselves have really helped shape who all of us are today as individuals. I think it's a mixture of stuff I did go through, some of the bullying, some of the harassment and all that, mixed with, you know, the love and the guidance and the mentorship that I found coming into leather, you know, and also a place to really belong when I came into sobriety, you know, and also being positive, coming up HIV positive at 21. I think there's a little bit of all that that has really shaped who I am today. And it's hard to sit here and say, well, yeah, all this shaped who I was at the contest. It's just who I've become today as a person. And I have to keep that in mind when the stage is empty and the lights are dimmed and we take off all of our gear, the person is still there. And that person has to come through whether or not you're wearing leather, whether or not you're on a stage. And through my life, a big part of what I put in my speech was, I'm ready to be a part of something bigger than me. And I think going through the stuff I've gone through has helped me get to that point to where, oh, I've got something to offer. Or, yeah, there's people here that could really hear you know, my message. Or there's somebody out there that just came out positive or is a college student that's a little bit dyslexic and deals with autism to a certain degree, you know, maybe they need to see that person up on any stage or, or they just need to hear that voice to say, that's me. Like that part is me. I can relate. And I credit a lot of, a lot of that to being sober as well. You know, being able to find what I can relate in somebody rather than the differences, because ultimately that's what, that's what bonds us big time. Absolutely. So I know we've talked before, and I know that you have a very strong, I guess, a very strong mission about body positivity and how that kind of played a role into your work as as a porn actor. Could you talk a little bit about how you got into porn in the first place and maybe go into a little bit about your journey with body positivity? Oh, I would love to. I would love to. So how I got started into porn, I was like 29 um, oh God, almost 10 years ago, I feel old. <laughs> this girl's got some miles on her. She needs a nap. She's been around the block. <laughs> um, I've been around the fucking neighborhood in the county, girl. <laughs> no, I had a couple car accidents. One that involved a lady going through a traffic light who hit me going 80 miles an hour and left me for dead in the middle of an intersection. And I shattered my leg, shattered my arm. I couldn't walk. I had to relearn how to walk. Months of physical therapy. A little bit of a concussion probably explains a lot of how I am now. (laughs) Um, (laughs) And it's crazy. It's all real. And, you know, before that, I always always felt too skinny, too gawky. My dick wasn't big enough. Always scared to have sex with the lights on and my clothes on. So after I healed up, I had this moment where I just got tired of being afraid. And I looked in the mirror. I was like, why am I so scared of everything? And why, you know, I want to do something to just, just say I did it. And I contacted a couple of people that I knew in Fort Lauderdale and I got in for a couple of scenes and, 
that's ultimately what it was supposed to be just a couple scenes, but it turned into eight years later, a career, Wow, seven, eight years later. And through that, you know, I don't have the biggest dick in porn. It's nice by all means, but it's not porn size. And I think we all know what I mean when I say porn size. It's not 11 and a half inch elephant trunk hanging down to my knee. I mean, if we, if you don't know, we can just Google and we'll see it. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Um, and, you know, I wasn't always the most muscular and all that. But by being that way and having people, you know, accept me and over the years, they've really enjoyed just seeing a quote unquote regular guy next door on camera and on film, you know, and allowed them to feel better about themselves. And in return, the messages I would get and the emails and the text allowed me to feel better in my own skin. You know, it's just this is who I am and, and this is not going to change. I don't have to be a certain way, especially in the porn industry when it's based strictly on looks, strictly on body. I don't have to be a certain way to have people appreciate me and to like me. And it's allowed me to learn to, you know, I'm okay just as I am. And yeah, of course, do I want to weigh more? Do I want to have bigger muscles? Do I want to? Yeah, of course I do. But I know it's not necessary to like myself today. I think that you make a really good point, and it kind of goes back to the the statement you made earlier. Uh, I'm, whether it, whether or not you know you're in porn, or whether or not you're into leather, like once you take all of that off and you go home, at the end of the day, there's somebody underneath all of that. You kind of have to be okay with that. Yeah, in the case of porn, it's putting everything back on and going home. <laughs> um, and it's just my fans and the people out there who see me and know my work. Uh, I feel weird calling people fans, but getting messages saying you've helped me so much to feel comfortable with myself and you've helped me. Now I've started having sex with the lights on with my partner and, and stuff like that. It's really given me a deeper understanding of being able to appreciate people and being able to appreciate what people go through. And I think when a lot of our quote unquote fans or spectators see us on the computer or see us on a DVD and all that, people in porn are some of the most insecure individuals like we have we have those things you know we look in the mirror and we think we aren't fat or or we think we're too fat or we're not big enough or not this and i've gone through bouts of bulimia thinking that you know i had to look a certain way Mm -hmm. but through this whole process i've as i said i've been able to get a good vibe about how i feel about myself and know that i don't have to binge and purge i don't have to go through these these eating disorders to be a certain way that I can be myself. And there's beauty in every body type, every skin color, every age. You know, it's really humbling to hear from a porn actor that that you've had issues with your body as well. And I think it gives all of us, you know, quote unquote, lay people, <laughs> you know, not in the porn industry, to give ourselves permission to not always feel a hundred percent and that, that that's okay. But you know, to it's about moving on from that. Correct. Correct. And there's nothing I can say or do advice wise to help anybody with that. I know that sounds bad, but we all have our own journey. And it's like when somebody's going through something very emotional, I don't want to say like a death or something or like a breakup, there's nothing you can do or say to make that person really feel better. They have to go through the process themselves. Right. And, but you know, I know you say that you, you don't have any, I guess, vocal advice to give on this particular topic, but you just having the visibility and you sharing your voice 
at, at least on this platform, if not on many others that you've had in the past, sharing your story like this is advice for people. This is living through you. They can experience uh, what you've gone through and, and take from that. And great, great. You know, I really hope my experiences are there to help people. And I, I really do hope that people hear it and see it. At the same time, I've never been that type of person wh- where, well, I'm going to go ahead and do all this, then I'm going to make sure everybody sees it. Right. But getting into porn wasn't, oh my God, I want to be this big role model. And I still don't consider myself a quote unquote role model. But like you mentioned, like I mentioned before, being visible and having somebody see, okay, well, this person's gone through the same exact thing that I am, I'm going through now. You know, in porn or not, leather or not, we're gay men. We don't talk about eating disorders. We don't talk about that kind of stuff. You know, but at the same time, we're really quick to shame somebody because of how they look. None of us know what the next person is going through. Right. Whether or not you tell me your problems, I don't know what you're going through. You weigh uh, you weigh 95 fucking pounds soaking wet, Brandon. Oh, shut you up. <laughs> <laughs> Jokingly, but... <laughs> There's people that are overly skinny and overly thin, but they could be having health issues. And then there's people that on the opposite end of the spectrum that could have had surgery, that could have had certain stuff that, that they're dealing with that we don't know about. And who the hell am I to sit here and try to put somebody down because of that? Like I have absolutely no room to speak with all my stuff by any means. And, And I think the biggest thing that we can do is just be visible, let people know that they're not alone. And if you would have had this conversation five years ago, I don't know if I would have been a, be this open about it. Mm-hmm. And that's mm-hmm. also my process. Even now I go to set and I leave set and I'm just like, Oh my God, I feel so gross. That was horrible. What's everybody, you know, what's everybody gonna think of me? How is social media going to blow up? You know, am I going to get bashed? And those questions always, always come out. It's no different than stepping on stage for your contest right. or my contest. No matter how confident somebody appears on the inside, a lot of us really aren't. We're intimidated. We're scared. And we're nervous. And I know the minute I s- stood up to say my speech, a lot of the stuff that was going through my head was, are these people going to like me? Mm-hmm. Are they going to appreciate me? Are they going to welcome me? And I, I'm, I'm sure maybe not the exact same questions, but I'm sure you probably had something along those lines go through your head. Yeah, I think I think just as human beings, um, you know, those are natural thoughts to have. But you know, like I said, it, it's about moving on from that and still getting to do the things that you need to do or the things that, you know, the goals that you want to accomplish, despite all of that. And I think that's what really can make a person stand out. The biggest thing with me, especially with the body positivity and the body shaming, it's as visible as I have to be with my industry to be confident and put that out there, I also think it's very important to show the downside of, of a lot of stuff, not just the porn industry, but to be able to be real. No, Yeah, yeah you I see this really it. confident person on film who could fuck his way through a fucking wall, but here's another side of him. And, and I think it's good to have that, to be able to see both. At the end of the day, you know, we, we don't know the bad somebody's going through unless we know the good. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think I, I love, I really appreciate your transparency because of the fact that it does give us permission, you know, to, to feel that way. You know, that's okay. Mm-hmm. And it is. We're human. We're human. There's We've all experienced it where we can wake up one day and we look in the mirror and we're like, oh, fuck that ugly monster. <laughs> 
let's just go back to bed or, or let's just go get tons of plastic surgery. <laughs> and then the next day we wake up and we're like, holy shit, I'd fuck myself. No, it's true. We all have those days. Um, it's so funny too, because with quarantine, I, I don't think I... I've been like figuring out my angles and my lighting more than ever before. Cause like, that's the only way I'm really engaging with the outside world at this point. <laughs> Atta girl. <laughs> Anyways, hold on. <laughs> okay. So speaking of your, your journey with porn and the body of positivity, I just have to ask, what was your first experience in your first scene like? How did that go? Were you nervous? Were you horned up? Uh, how did it play out for you? Um, uh, yeah, it was. Now that was a choice. Um, <laughs> <laughs> hashtag Tantiana. I, uh, it was good. It was good. It was just a few weeks before that was the first time I was ever on camera naked doing a photo shoot. I had never been on camera, not even my cell phone. I had never even took dick pics or anything. Luckily, I knew the producer. I, I had been friends with him beforehand. And I didn't really know my co-star until he showed up. And I had already known him through some other stuff before. So it was a little bit of a, a comforting thing. Okay. My first scene, I played a straight guy. It was for a company called MyHusbandIsGay.com. Nice. I played a straight guy whose wife was on her period and not putting out. And we were out fishing. Very Florida Brokeback Mountain. <laughs> not believable at all. I thought I was believable. but And everything was going good. And then the cum shot came and I couldn't come. Oh God. And when you have cameras on you and you've got people like there are expecting it. And I'll go back and say that before this scene, before my first few scenes, I had to figure out a lot of stuff on my own. Mm-hmm. And this kind of ties into the body positivity. I had to find out what turns me on more. I had to find out how much liquid to drink and just how my body was going to react to certain things. And it allowed me to get to know my body a lot better. So I didn't have anybody guiding me. I didn't have anybody teaching me. And I basically just jumped in and did it all my own. Mm -hmm. And when it came to the cum shot, the other guy came. He had done a handful of porn before I did. And I was I was the newbie. And I, I couldn't come. And I tried and I tried and I tried and I, I couldn't come. I just, I got nervous. And I won't tell you how many cum shots in porn total are fake, but it's probably more than what, what people think. And what they did is they had a tube. After about a half hour of trying to come, they took a tube. They put it down my back. A guy was behind me with a bottle attached to the tube, put it down my back, put it underneath my balls and my taint. And the tip of it was just below the head of my dick. And the camera was facing down towards my dick in the buff shot. So as I'm jerking off, you can't see the tube or anything. And I do the whole, I'm going to come, I'm going to come. Like we all see, see him pouring that little five second build up. Okay, you know what's going to happen. <laughs> and right as I said I was going to come, they started pumping this fake lotion come through my back in this tube out. So it looks like it's coming out of the head of my dick. Oh my God. And right after a couple splurts, they had it timed right to where it looked like a big load, but it wasn't it wasn't like, oh my god, that's fake. And right right as they were doing it, they ripped this plastic tube from my dick, from my balls, from my hand, and it went all the way up my back and actually left a scratch all the way up my back. Oh my god. And and almost cut my balls. Fuck. So that must have hurt. It was not comfortable. <laughs> <laughs> it was not comfortable. And 
I had sworn since that day that I will have a natural cum shot. And for the sake of argument, every other cum shot's been natural. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. I love that so much. <laughs> I, I've had, I've had, in the seven years I've been doing it, I've got well over 300 scenes, well over 120 movies out. And I would say 90% of my cum shots are real. Yeah, that's so interesting, uh, the way you describe that. Because I think a lot of us, we think that you guys just get on set and you just have fun and start fucking around and they videotape it. But it sounds like it's a lot more work than what we think. <laughs> oh, it's work. It's 100% work. And don't get me wrong. I've had moments where I've gone in for a scene and I'm so attracted to the guy that I forget the camera's there and everything goes perfectly. I think my shortest scene I filmed was 25 minutes. My longest scene was three and a half hours. Damn. The reality is, I don't want to give away too many secrets because I don't want to kill people's sure. fascination. But through this process, I got, as I said, I got to learn what turns people on. And I'm not going to speak for any other model in the industry. Mm-hmm. But I know for me, especially if I'm bottoming on film, you know, I'll be just a hole for the top. And I'll, I will do what I need to do to get the shots and all that. And then when it comes for my cum shot, I'm pretty pretty grateful that I've worked with the same producers over the past three, four years that they know when I'm about to come. I don't have to say much. They know my body. And I sit there and I watch porn. When they say come shots, the other guy comes, they give me 10 minutes and I sit there and I watch porn on my phone. And there's been a lot of times where I'm laying on a pillow when I actually have X-tube going in my ear and I'm the only one that can hear it. The camera doesn't pick up. Or I say I'm about to come like 10 seconds before I'm about to come and I throw my phone across the room. And it just, yeah, there's, there's, there's a lot more that goes on behind the scenes. And there's those scenes where it's like, okay, I'm just not attracted to this guy. Yeah, I I, I can imagine, you know, you getting paired up with somebody because like, that's what the audience wants to see and you're, that's just not your type. So that makes me wonder what, what is your type? It kind of varies. Mm-hmm. I naturally go for, it seems recently my past three exes have all been short, furrier, tatted little muscle bears. Okay. As I get older, I see my taste going more towards the younger type, but I still have a very soft spot for a nice daddy. And I've, I've started to, I think coming into my own sexually, I've been able to embrace other types of men. You know, I don't really have any issues with race. I don't really have any issues with age per se or size. It's it's kind of like when I'm, I'm watching porn. One day I could watch complete straight porn and it gets me off and I love it. The next day I could watch completely smooth twinks go at it and I could love it. You know, and then the day after that I could watch a big bear orgy and love it. So for me, the older I get, the more it's about the person itself. All right. Yeah. So definitely, it seems like your tastes vary. Um, at the end of the day, you're saying it, it's about the person and that you're attracted to more than the physical traits sometimes. Yeah. I, I think like most men, you know, I love a good beard. I, you know, if the guy has some fur, great, but I've got nothing against a man who's naturally smooth. And I, I, it's not, I love like a good bush and I love pits and all that. But when I see a guy completely manicured and trimmed, and head to toe completely bald, sexually it doesn't do anything for me. But I can look at them and say, he's a fucking hot guy. Like a straight woman walking down the street, we can all look at a straight woman who's gorgeous and be like, she's fucking hot. But it doesn't mean that that we're turned on by him. Right, right. No, that makes sense. 
Okay, so I'm curious because I know you flag, uh, what is it, white? I flag, I flag a lot. Um, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I flag white, I flag tan, I can flag hunter green, navy blue, yellow, red. This sounds like I'm going towards flagging orange for everything, but I think it just depends on the day. Okay, so what would you say is like your your favorite? My favorite? I tend to uh, I tend to be partial towards white. Okay. It's hard to say which one is my actual favorite. I consider myself 50/50 verse, but if I'm really in a top mood, then you know I'll I'll will flag navy blue. I will flag hunter green. You know if I'm in a more dominant mood, which is daddy. You know, and there's sometimes I'm looking for a daddy. You know, so I will flag it on on the left. And there's sometimes where I just don't want that. And I just want to go fucking jerk off or get my dick sucked or swallow some cum. <laughs> That's all. <You> know? <laughs> and, and I love fisting. And of course, tan is for cigars. And I love cigars. Uh, are you fisting top or fisting bottom? Top. Top. Okay. <laughs> no hesitation. Top. <laughs> now, I've got no objections to maybe trying to fist as a bottom one time, but that's definitely depending on the right person and how comfortable I feel and all that. I leave all kinks and fetishes open for negotiation, so to speak. Right. I'm curious as, as someone who's done porn, are there any uh, like sexual fantasies that you haven't lived out that, you know, for yourself that, that you want to, or, or maybe one that you have lived out that, uh, is fairly memorable to you. What's been your your biggest fantasy? My biggest fantasy. You know, I would, uh, I would love to be around four or five daddies, you know, taking their turns on me and, you know, all them dumping their loads of me and then flip it around. And I fuck all of them. Um, nice. (laughs) You know, there's not a whole lot of my fantasies and all that switched day to day. One day I, I could watch porn and really be into one thing. The next day I could be into something completely different. Fantasies for me are just pushing my limits, whether it's on camera or not, uh, touching on the porn aspect. What a lot of people don't know is my first two or three years in porn was my first time trying a lot of stuff and experimenting. You know, I never really bottomed before I started porn, never really fisted, never really got choked, never really got a lot of stuff done until porn. So that's helped me really branch out. You know, I think from being a sex worker and being in the industry so long, I would say my ultimate fantasy is just having one person there, just being intimate with and having that connection more than just going out and fucking around. So I love going out and fucking around. (laughs) (laughs) And when we're all left out out of our houses, um, I'm sure there'll be plenty of time for that. (laughs) Oh, yeah, there better be. (laughs) (laughs) so what's the first thing that you're going to do when this is all said and done with covid and you're allowed back in the bars what's your what's going to be your your uh first sexual encounter um we'll see what happens you know i don't a lot of the time when i go out i don't have it in the back of my mind to hook up i love i love the spur of the moment stuff i love just walking to a bathroom and trying to take a pee somebody's next to you jerking off You know, I love just like spontaneous stuff. I've never been the type of person, okay, when I, when this happens or I'm on scruff, okay, let's plan a date for this day. 
I don't know what's going to happen. You know, if something happens, some sexual thing happens, great. You know, I flag white uh, for come whore and J.O. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm a voyeur, so I love watching cams. I love looking. I love jacking off. You know, so not really a whole much has changed except the actual physical touch. But right. I can be I can be happy jerking off four, five, six times a day at home. <laughs> you know, That's and true. not crave that actual. Um, okay, I need a dick in me. You know. Right. But that being said, I'm a fucking gay male who loves dick. So of <laughs> course I want dick. <laughs> so you sound to me like someone who is more about uh the personal connection like would you say you hook up more when you go out and you meet people in person or are you more of someone who's kind of like efficient and gets on the apps and finds your hookups a mixture of both i'm definitely a little bit more private with my sexual escapades and i think a lot of that has to do with putting everything out there for so long mm-hmm. that you know i enjoy not everybody seeing everything you know, there's been bars where I've sucked dick and I fucked people and all that in the bathroom or on stage, you know, which is all, all well and fine. If it happens, it happens. I also like my private time as well. And if I, I want to get off, then I'll go on the apps and find somebody. You know, I'm not the guy who's going to wait around. Okay, well, I'm not available now. I'm available at, at 10 o'clock tonight. Dude, I don't know if I'm going to be horny at 10 o'clock tonight. I'm horny now. No, that's exactly what I think. That's, <laughs> that's why it's so hard on Grinder when people are like, um, oh, like, what are you doing tomorrow? And I'm like, I'm free tomorrow, but I don't know if I'm going to want to have sex tomorrow, <laughs> like at one in the afternoon. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> Of course, of course, you know, sometimes I love an intimate connection. Sometimes, you know, I can look at people and it's like, okay, they're going to be good just for one good bang and bye. Right, right. I remember there's there's this one time I, I was at a, at a bar and there was this guy there and I was just like, I don't know, it wasn't, it wasn't a very populated bar. I don't want to say the name of it, but I remember looking up at this guy and we had like talked for maybe like two minutes and I just looked, looked up at him and it was like last call and I'm like, do you want to have sex? And he's like, sure. And he pulls out his phone and he's like, how about next week, Monday at 6.30? And I'm like, okay. And like, sure enough, he showed up like next week, Monday at 6.30 and we we had sex. And I thought it was like the funniest thing because it was like the most efficient way I've ever gotten a hookup before. I was like- That was you that, that was talking to me that night? Shut up, Jim. <laughs> I, uh, I feel very seen right now. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, if something happens when I go out, great. You know, I tend to always leave by myself and I'm happier with that. So we're going to take a quick break here just to give our audience a heads up. This is the part of the interview where our guest will talk a little bit about his own sexual discoveries at a young age. If you are sensitive towards hearing this type of material, please skip ahead to around the 46 minute mark. So as someone who like performs and stuff like, you know, live sex, what do you, what has for you been like your, your sexiest hookup when you're at, when you're at the bar and you're not performing? I love public bathrooms. I love glory holes. I love stuff like that. You know, I'm not, I'm very, I don't want to say very old school, but I guess just how I was introduced and in my hometown, there weren't a lot of gay bars and no leather bars. It was very conservative and Republican. So we had a lot of like video arcades and glory holes. I, I do remember when I was like 11 or 12, we had this outdoor mall 
There were no doors on the stalls. It was really fucking nasty. You know, all these older men were in there and okay. It sounds like they raped me. (laughs) Very rapey, but you know, I loved it. And that's just how I was introduced to that stuff. Like a lot of the cruising, you know, like the thrill of the chase, locking eyes with somebody across the bar, them grabbing their cock, I in the bathroom. I love that kind of stuff. So I got caught playing with a friend when I was like eight. I mean, I was sucking dick when I was like 10 or 11. His parents caught me. Then, of course, I had to tell my dad and blah, blah, blah. Parents, like, I, I came into puberty and I was like discovering stuff. You know, I was like 11, 12-ish maybe, you know, where I got hooked on the glory holes and I love the glory holes. You know, it wasn't like I didn't go to my bat- first bathhouse till I was like 30. You know, there was a lot of stuff. It, uh, I guess kind of a late bloomer, you know, and that kind of goes with where I grew up in. It was very sexually closed. And I do remember I was like 10 or 11 and I'd go into like bookstores like Barnes and Noble or Books a Million or, or stuff like that. And I would always get the book, The New Joy of Gay Sex. And, you know, I take the, the book into the bathroom, you know, or I would get like those men's fitness magazines where they had like the see-through thongs in the back. Mm-hmm. And I would take that in and jerk off, you know, and I remember a few times I'd jerk off right there in the aisle, you know, out, out in the open, you know, so that was like my first introduction, you know, that and remember seeing Rob, Robert Maplethorpe and Tom of Finland, you know, just like the very erotic, you know, Tom of Finland's really good with just the cruising, the cruising aspect. You know, and of course, over time, you know, I'm sure you can even say, you know, when you first discovered gay sex and all that, the way you discovered it to where you are now, it's probably a lot different. Yeah, absolutely. So how did your family feel when you, I mean, you, you say you identify as, as gay. Yeah. So does your family know that you're gay or what's the dynamic there? You've met me who doesn't know I'm gay. <laughs> um. No, no, you know, it's been a process with my parents and I. I came out when I was 14. My mom at that time was a conservative Bible-thumping Christian. Her response was, well, I hope you don't get AIDS and die. My dad, I used to say he was a homophobe. You know, my parents were starting the process of a divorce right about the time I came out. Mm -hmm. So I was his scapegoat. He smacked me around. You know, he hit me. I was kind of, I was abused. You know, knowing what I know now, I don't think it has to do directly with me being gay. I just think, you know, like I said, I was a scapegoat. You know, somebody to take his anger out on. They've always seen me as their son. They've never seen me as the gay son. And they've always loved me as a son. Of course, there's boundaries and, and limitations. I was never able, I never felt comfortable talking about a boyfriend or anything like that. But over the years, my dad has come to my side of a couple of times where I've gone through a breakup. He's mentioned, do I need to go take care of him for you? You know, so, I mean, it's definitely evolved as, as we get older, which, you know, I'm sure, I'm sure with you, when you came out, your parents, everybody were one way and now they see you grown up and mature and all that, you know, and I'm, I'm sure they're completely different. Yeah, definitely. I mean, things for me have changed outwardly. Inwardly, I I know, um, well, even outwardly in many ways. But, uh, you know, my my situation is still growing. But yeah, I think that's like a similar story for for a lot of people, especially if you come from like a Christian family or or particularly religious family, you know, to, to have that kind of friction in the beginning, at least. Right, right. You know, at that time, I was playing sports, too. And I came out in a very homophobic sport. 
you know, at 14, 15. And that really um, caused a lot of waves. And I went through a lot of stuff with that. But, um, you know, so there's just, there was just a lot of things that just played into it. I never saw it as a problem. Everybody else around me saw it as something bad and wrong. You know, my mom told me years later after I came out that my aunt and my grandmother outed me when I was three years old. So, I mean, I think it was just a given. (laughs) (laughs) So switching gears a little bit here. Tell us a little bit about your journey to IML, because a lot of us title holders here in Los Angeles had the opportunity to go to either LAL or IML, and you chose to go straight to IML. Is that correct? I did. I did. So maybe you can share a little bit about with us that journey. Okay, yeah. Um, One, it definitely was a controversial decision. You know, but participating in IML and being on that platform is something that I've wanted for well over 10 years, you know, and running for this title has given me that opportunity to do so. You know, it's definitely come with its its challenges, but it's nothing that, you know, I can't grow from and learn from and become a better person both in and out of leather. You know, IML has got postponed and I'm still gearing up for it. I'm still preparing Um, I'm still beyond excited for it. And now with this postponement, my motivation is a thousand times better. It's a thousand times higher. You know, to say that I don't want to win would be a lie. But at the same time, you know, I believe anybody who steps on the stage for any contest, you know, has a chance of winning, has a chance of doing good. So why do you want to win IML? What what would it mean to you? It would, you know, battling. I, I, I don't like the word battling or suffering. You know, I live with a touch of autism. I live with dyslexia, bulimia, Um, you know, never always being in the shadow of everything and not feeling good enough. And for one of the first times in my life, I really believe I've got that experience to offer other people, you know, dealing with mental health stuff and depression. You know, there's a lot of stuff not talked about in our community. Yeah. Um, which is starting to become more and more to light. Yes. But overall it's uh, stuff that's just not talked about that much, you know, and having experience in that being able to help others and, and being on a much larger platform to do so, you know, my work in Los Angeles is always going to continue whether or not I have a title, whether or not I go to IML, the people that I help here are, is going to continue on, you know, just like me winning Mr. Regiment, Going on to that platform, I've been able to have more of a voice and to be heard a lot in a much better way than I did beforehand. And that's going to be no different for IML. You know, I'm going to have that opportunity to share my experience, to help others, you know, to let them know that it's okay to feel the way they are and they are not alone. And, you know, I truly believe that I've gone through everything in my life, all my experiences and all that, that has led me to this point right now. You know, and I also believe that we go through stuff in life to be able to help others and educate others and give back. So, you know, beyond just having the platform and just having the identity or the title of IML, it seems like what you're saying is to win IML would be another huge step just in your journey of life, really. Correct. Correct. It's taken me a long time to get to where I'm, I'm at with myself and to feel proud of who I am and to feel confident 
with my experiences and not feel ashamed of getting raped, of getting bullied, you know, of my bulimia, of my dyslexia, you know, not, not to be embarrassed by it. And I'm, I'm ready to share that. I'm really ready to pass that on to others, you know, and, and I'm ready to show what leather has given me. That is incredibly powerful. And thank you for sharing that. Um, it really speaks volumes to who you are as a person and really why you want to compete for IML and what you represent. So let me ask you, um, how are you getting to IML? I know you've had a couple of Facebook fundraisers. Is that correct? Um, I put on, I put on a couple fundraisers on, on Facebook. Yeah. Um, right now with everything with the COVID-19, you know, I, I, I don't want people to support my road to IML. I want them to support, you know, those being affected by this pandemic. So as Mr. Regiment 2020 and a contestant for IML, what is your message to the community now? What would you like to say to them going through this whole thing? Don't give up. Don't give up. You know, everything we're going through is making us stronger and is really teaching us and showing us the people that we can really be. I say a lot that you're not alone and people are loved and we see you and we do 100%. The biggest thing I can say is just be true to yourself and follow your heart. And when you do that, you can rest your head easy at night. Yeah, it sounds like that's kind of your mantra. And uh, I'm really connect with that as well, you know, just follow being yourself and following your heart. And it sounds easy to do. <laughs> and in some ways, cliche, but it's not, you know, people can say that, but it, it, I think this trial that we're all going through together is really testing us to see, do we live by those words? Or are they just words? Right, right. You know, with everything going on with COVID-19 and the pandemic and all that, this isn't a leather thing. This isn't a LGBTQ thing. You know, this is a humanity thing. Mm-hmm. And being title holders, you know, I believe that we have a greater responsibility to sh- suit up and show up and be there in a more visible way. So as a current title holder, could you talk a little bit about your platform and your mission as the current Mr. Regiment 2020 and also as a contestant for IML? Yeah. Um you know, leather has really taught me to be authentic and be true to myself. And following your heart is never easy. But you've got to be able to put your head down at night and be okay with yourself and not have any regrets. In general, I'm very big on shaming, you know, well, the against it. You're against <laughs> shaming. Okay. Yeah. You know, and, and a couple of those things ties into what I want to accomplish as a title holder as well. So what are some of those things that you would like to, like, what, what, what is your mission and platform as, as a title holder? You know, it's a couple big things that I had was definitely bringing, you know, I touched on this earlier is the peer mentoring program. <clears throat> you know, the name I want to start out for it is Gloves. Gloves Connect, it brings two people together. And um, I haven't been able to implement it. I was just starting to before COVID, you know, but I think it's, major and i think it's very pertinent to have those people that feel like they are not alone that that they can connect with somebody you know and that ties into even what i said before that you know i believe a lot of our members who have been around for a while also have that responsibility to pass on their knowledge you know if somebody wants to get into fisting you know part of this program is 
okay, I know four or five fisters who love fisting and can do it safely. You know, it's being able to be adjusted to your kinks. It's being able to, you know, try to match somebody up or people who are just willing to have their number available to say, hey, you know, this is one of my first times going out to a leather bar. You know, can we chat? Can we text? Can I meet you out there? So I see a familiar face, you know, educating people and making them feel like they belong. Yeah, I definitely see the value in that. There's definitely like um, a couple kinks that, you know, I've got gone into and I, it took me a while as someone who was actively looking like to find somebody who shared that interest and like was experienced in it. So I definitely see the value in that. All right. Well, we have a few minutes left. Uh, so I do want to ask you uh, if you could describe in just a couple sentences, um, what does leather mean to you? Leather means authenticity, bravery, courage, and strength to be who you truly are, to embrace who, who you are, and to accept who you are. Then take that and move it into brotherhood and community and service. And at the end of the day, leather means love to me. All politics, everything aside, leather is love. And this is a group of people that started because we didn't, we couldn't find any place else to go where we could be accepted for who we are and what we liked. And to me, that is, that's powerful. It's really powerful. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Jeff, for uh, taking some time out of your day to talk, um, to talk with me and, and have your voice heard on the podcast. Um what ways can we reach out to you if we wanted to uh, get in contact with you or even come go and see one of your porns or um... <laughs> you can always for porn you could always google christian matthews porn it'll come up okay now a disclaimer i started eight years ago so a lot of stuff is kind of old and i look a lot different now <laughs> my twitter is at XXX Christian M. All right. My Facebook is Jeff May in parentheses, Mr. Regiment. And my Instagram is Mr. Regiment 2020. Awesome. And uh, assuming we're getting going to be out of this COVID, uh, hopefully soon, sooner than later, do you have any events coming up or uh, anything planned for the near future? Um, we have IML happening in September, scheduled for September 24th and 27th. And right now, those are the dates, but we will see. Anything could happen tomorrow or next week. You know, but now I, when it comes to events and all that right now, um, I don't plan on going back to the bars. I don't plan on going to any events and especially hosting any events until visitors are allowed in the hospital to see their loved ones. Absolutely. Until we have knocked it down that much to where we see it just as a common cold and people aren't dying. Other than that, it would be extremely selfish of me to put on events at a bar just because they're open and put people at risk. I, I will not do that. No, I really appreciate you saying that. I, I definitely feel the same way. Um, any, any last statements before we head out? One big statement. If you need assistance, if you need help, if, if you need somebody to talk to, myself and Eric Wilson started the Los Angeles Leather COVID-19 Assist about two or three months ago. And what we do is we bring groceries, necessities, 
run errands, medications to people that are in need, that are too afraid to get out of their house or doctor's orders that they, they have to stay in and self-quarantine. A couple months later, the LALC started their LALC CARES program, which offers a lifeline, a pantry, and also financial assistance. So there's plenty of resources out there during this time. You are not alone if you need help. Please, with the Los Angeles Leather COVID-19 Assist, reach out to myself or Eric Wilson, and we will do whatever we can to get you the stuff you need, or even if you just need to talk. Absolutely. And we will put uh, links for all of those in the description below. Awesome. So thanks again, Jeff, and we'll, we'll hope to see you soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Before we go, I'd just like to continue reminding you about the LA Leather COVID-19 Assist, as well as the LALC Community Assistance Resource Service. These organizations include services such as grocery pickup, supplies, a pantry, a lifeline buddy system, and much, much more. I will be sure to put links for these in the description below. As always, you can find me on Facebook as Brandon Bullet, Instagram and Patreon as Leather Talk Mr. Bullet. Additionally, if you've been on my Patreon before, you've probably noticed that there really isn't any content there. That is changing coming later this week. You can expect to see some great bonus material. Foxy and Fugue, the music producers who created the podcast music you hear at the intro and the outro of these episodes, they are going to be on an episode for Patreon. Um, They're hilarious. They're amazing. They have such a great energy. Go take a look. I plan on continuing to release more bonus material as the weeks go on. So keep your eyes open for that. You can support the Patreon page for as little as one, two, three dollars a month. Any support you offer really helps to keep the podcast going and is really going to make it possible for more voices to continue being heard throughout the leather community. Don't forget to rate and subscribe. And as always, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay kinky. Okay.